pray together now and ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Lord, you tell us that we are to pour our, our hearts to you. You delight in that. You want to hear from us. And so as we come now, we ask that you would please help us to better understand your word. We pray that you would make us more like Jesus. We ask that you work in our hearts by your spirit and help us so that we grow in our love for you and our desire to serve you. We live in a very needy world, and so we pray as we come to you that you would make us a blessing. And we ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a fantasy. Walk into a gas station, give $1 for a ticket, and win the lottery. And you can buy anything you want. One of the most recent totals for the mega million lottery, $646 million. But what are the odds for hitting that jackpot? One chance in, get this, one chance in 258,890,850. Astronomical. Well, consider some other odds to get that in perspective. You have a greater chance of being crushed to death by a snack vending machine. (laughs) One in 112 million. Or becoming president of the United States. One in 10 million. Or how about this one? Dying from bee stings. One in only six million. So what makes people think that their one dollar investment is going to yield this staggering wealth? And I think the answer is fantasy. And did you know the bigger the fantasy, the more hopeful we become, at least that's what psychologists tell us. Uh, They even have a name for this problem. It's called lottery-itis. And uh, here's how they explain it. We may seek a magic pill to make us feel better. Ah, yes, but a lottery ticket. Feel again like you did when you were a child, having hope that better days will come, that some big thing will happen that will make everything right. George Lowenstein is a professor of economics and psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. And he says, people really don't understand about probabilities. Once you have a bunch of zeros after a number, it doesn't make much difference. Um, One in 10,000, one in a million, one in a billion. And if it happened to somebody else last time, why not me now? And the point is this. 
everybody hopes. And the Lord calls his people to live in hope. Different kind of hope. Uh, the Bible says, hope in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. And don't we want to follow the Lord in this regard? Don't we want to be people who are looking forward to the future into which he's leading us? Today's topic has to do with living in hope. It's from the psalm Agilon just read to us. Psalm 130, if you have it in front of you, uh, please turn to it. We want to see what the writer has to say. And we're going to look, first of all, at the downside of sin, and then the upside of hope, and then draw out some implications for the week that's ahead. Now, this is another one of those psalms of ascent. Uh, Jewish saints sang this one and other ones as they went up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. So let's look at the downside of sin. Out of the depths, those are the first words before us. Uh, now, depths isn't used very much in the Old Testament, only five times in total. But that's not to suggest that being down in the dumps is an infrequent experience for the people of God. We live in a fallen world. There's disappointment. There's decay, disease, death. We can't get away from it. There's something terribly wrong with our world. And so is the writer talking to this general problem of living in a fallen world when he says, out of the depths? Well, look at verses 1 and 2 now. Out of the depths have I cried unto you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Uh, let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. What's he want? He doesn't have in mind what he thinks he deserves. He's asking for mercy. And we can kind of get the idea of mercy when you think about rich people and poor people. If you want a verse to substantiate this, look at uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 23. But think about a rich man. He is somebody with whom others must reckon. He has position and prestige and power. He can control. He can speak to people roughly if he wants to. He can be demanding. But not so when it comes to a poor man. Without resources, he is vulnerable. All he can do is plead. And before the Lord, this psalmist is like a poor man. No elevated status. He can only come asking and waiting in humility. So what's the writer's issue? Why is he down in the dumps? Why does he say out of the depths? Has he just had a bad day? He wakes up in the morning and finds that he, uh, a check has bounced. Uh, his car won't start. Um, he's missed an appointment as a result. Is that what's going on with him? Well, verse 3. None of these relatively minor misfortunes. He says, if you, Lord, should 
mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Iniquities, sins, acts of disobedience to God's word. Whatever the details, this writer has a sin problem. He's offended holy God. And this isn't just his issue. Where would we be if the Lord were to track our sins and hold them against us? According to verse 3, nobody could stand. And if God were to keep a record of our sins, he might rightly remind us along these lines. Hey, you know, you messed up. I mean, shame on you. You ought to know better. Uh, Don't you get it? Apparently, you're really not interested in a relationship with me. So the writer is in the depths. Sin alienates from God, and from the human side, it creates an impregnable barrier. The downside of sin, then, is more complicated than what we've seen so far when we think about the larger context. He's about to join other worshipers going up to Jerusalem, there to be in the temple with God. What a predicament. I mean, maybe he would be better off just to stay down on the farm rather than go up to the holy city. So let's just pause here. When did your conscience last bother you? When did you last think, oh, I've done what I shouldn't have done? Or I haven't done what I should have done? Or, spiritually speaking, I'm in big trouble. Was it walking in the door this morning? When we got to the part of worship a few moments ago where we confessed our sins to the Lord? Maybe sometime during last week? When did your conscience last trouble you? And where did you go when that realization dawned on you? Things aren't right between me and the Lord. Things are not right between me and other people. Well, with me, often my reaction is I want to silence my conscience. I want to disregard it. I don't like having this sense of guilt and its attendant shame. I want to get away from my wrongs, of which I will tell you there are many. Now, thankfully, the Lord hasn't let me go. Uh, Even when I try to silence my conscience, it haunts me. Um, And truth be told, when I try to get 
away from the Lord, it's as if his hand weighs heavy upon me. I get feeling worse and worse and more and more in the depths. And then I've also thought to myself, do I really want the Lord to leave me alone? Suppose he were to do that. Where would that take me? He could do it, you know. There are plenty of people down through history who have said, I strayed away from the Lord. It's not that I fell into sin. I went into it with my eyes wide open. Uh, The Lord could say something like this. You like your sin by the ounce? Here, try it by the pound. You like it by the pound? Why don't you see what it would be like in ton form? In, uh, on March 28, 1979, a sightseeing flight crashed into a mountain in Antarctica, killing all 279 people on board. The reason? The crew had not been told about a two-degree correction that had been made to the plane's flight path the night before. And that sent it into Mount Erebus rather than flying over McMurdo Sound. Two degrees. Uh, In aviation, those are huge. Pilots are taught, I learned, the one in 60 rule. And it goes like this. With one degree of error, after flying 60 miles, you'll be one mile off course. You may intend to fly over a lake, but with, a wrong, uh, with this wrong setting, you can head right to a disastrous crash in a mountain. And what's the spiritual lesson here? I can try to escape my guilt and shame by ignoring my sins. But little by little, that decision will take me farther and farther away from the Lord. And so when I consider that, I cry out, Oh, Lord, please don't give me over to my sin. Please continue to be patient with me. Draw me to yourself. Help me to have a heart for you. I want to follow you. In other words, you can't get close enough to the Lord and you can't get far enough away from sin. There's great wisdom in this little discipleship note. Keep short accounts with the Lord. When your conscience taps you on the shoulder, turn quickly to him. Confess your sins and seek his mercy. Uh, the psalmist points us in the direction of the downside of sin. And at the same time, the Lord gives us this wonderful encouragement. Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Unaddressed, your sin will take you to places you never want to go. And I'll bet if we did a little survey around the room, we would have one person after another person say, yes, my sin has taken me places I, oh, I wish I hadn't. I wish I hadn't gone there. Well, how does this relate to joining God's people in worship? Just hang on to that. We're going to get to it in a moment. But please remember, God has not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. So now let's think about the upside of hope. The end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4 are very important. Verse 3, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Forgiveness. It's a decision and it's an act by which a wrong is no longer held against an indebted party. The offender, he doesn't pay money to resolve the problem. He doesn't do X number of good works in order to get over the hump. We read, but with you there is forgiveness. God extends forgiveness out of sheer kindness just because he wants to. It is neither earned nor deserved. And with this realization of God's forgiveness, how does the writer respond? Well, please notice now. We want to look at verses 5 and following. There are two ideas that run together here. One is the notion of waiting on the Lord, and the other one is the idea of hope. So look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word do I hope. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. And then verse 7, <clears throat> let Israel hope in the Lord. Clearly, the Lord does not want his people in the depths, down in the dumps, because of their sin. And so there's a way forward, and it is turn your eyes away from your failures and turn to the Lord and to the future that he has for you. So, what's this idea of waiting? One commentator has suggested that the, the Hebrew word uh, carries with it this notion of having a string attached to another. Uh, so, in this case, string from my heart to the Lord. I'm waiting for the Lord. He's out there. He's the one that's got me grounded. I'm connected to him. That's the idea of waiting. And uh, this also helps us with the repetitions in verse 6. Do you see what it, say? what it says? 
I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. Uh, I wait for him more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Ever had a night job? You didn't get enough sleep before you went into work? And uh, you're half sick to your stomach? And you long for the morning to come so you can call it quits and get back to bed. Night seems interminable. Or how about this one? You're caring for a sick baby and you're caught. Uh, You're caught between wanting to do whatever you can to ease the child's suffering and keeping the crying down so that it doesn't awaken the rest of the people in the house and um, also holding it together yourself. Again, half sick to your stomach. Or, how about this? You're at the bedside of a dying loved one. You're both feeling helpless and frantic, and you don't know what to do to provide comfort. Well, those images give us some insight into the life of faith. It's this waiting and hoping in the Lord more than those that watch for the morning. He's got to deliver. He's got to get me out of this problem with my sin. And if he doesn't, nobody else will. And in those long nights of the soul, we can question, will the Lord come through for me? And let me assure you, he will. He will come through for you. Give me chapter and verse, you say. All right. How about Psalm chapter 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Verse 3. Do you know what it says? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Whatever your struggle with sin might be, the Lord is committed to you. He's committed to leading you in paths of righteousness, no matter how bumpy the road may be. Not primarily because of you, but primarily because of him. His reputation is on the line here. And now we can understand better those last two verses. With the Lord is steadfast love, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all iniquities. There is every reason for you to face the future with renewed confidence based on this psalm of ascent. The Lord's on your side. And so as Jewish saints would go up to Jerusalem to worship, we gather every Sunday, week by week. We need the Lord. We want the Lord. We come to meet him in this hour. And don't we see this kind of waiting and hoping modeled in our Savior? As our sin-bearer, Jesus knows the power of our iniquities. 
Before his trial, the mother of James and John came to him and said, I have a request for you. And Jesus said, all right, what is it? And she said, I'd like, when you come into your kingdom, I'd like to have one of my sons sit on your right and one of them sit on the left. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Those places have been reserved by my father. And in making that statement, what does Jesus say about the future? He anticipates being raised from the dead, returned to the Father's right hand. We touched on some additional observations uh, of how the Lord fulfills this psalm last week. In his passion there in the Garden of Gethsemane and in the crucifixion, he looks forward with patience waiting on the Lord, on the Father's timing, and to be delivered from the agony that he experiences. And the same truth is obvious in John chapter 17, verse 24. There Jesus says, I desire that those who believe on me may be with me to see my glory that you've given me. Jesus fulfills this psalm. He lives in hope in the face of sin's realities. But he does it so that you, empowered by the Holy Spirit who's now at work in you, uh, so that you might do the same. You might live out this psalm. So what might it look like? to live in keeping with the theology that's here. Well, let me make some suggestions. First of all, let's make sure that you're turning your eyes away from your failures and toward the Lord. Jesus paid for all of your sins, and he's delivering you from all of your sins. And it's only a matter of time of which he is well in control. You're going to be delivered. So turn away from your sin and look toward the Lord. Second point of application. Live in hope. Live in hope. Thank the Lord that having forgiven you, He's also given you the promises of his word. Bank on those. Preach them to yourselves with regularity. And then one more. You know how you tend to be judgmental of other people? You do, right? You know how that happens? Yeah. Well, well, confess and repent of that legalism. And and let's say this to ourselves now. In light of this psalm, the Lord did not wait for you to get it together before he extended his grace to you. And you don't have to wait for other people to get it together before you extend grace to them either. Instead, you can do that. And you can forgive even those that you believe have wronged you.
I think there's a, um, a note from history that helps us when we uh, consider this idea of living in light of the future into which the Lord is leading us. Do you know how uh, black slaves anticipated their freedom when the message went out, you're going to be set free? Do you know how they anticipated that? Well, we're told that the night before their promised anticipation, many of them never went to bed at all. They could hardly wait for the day to dawn. And as the story goes, thousands and even tens of thousands of them gathered in their places of worship to read the Bible and to pray and to sing as they waited for the first streaks of light. It was the day they were going to be made free. And some of them went up on the hill so that they could get a better view of the first breaking of the dawn and then call down to their brothers and sisters in the valley, the light is coming. They watched for the morning. You're in a position to watch for the morning. Watching for the morning means hoping in the Lord. And that's the upside of hope. We're always able to be future-focused on a bright day into which the Lord is leading us. You've been set free through the blood of Christ. You've been set free to anticipate your redemption, which is now drawing nearer. It's nearer now than when you first believed. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your message to us, hope in the Lord. Help us now, we pray. May we wait longingly for you, even as we anticipate you delivering us from our sins. And we ask these mercies in Jesus' name, amen.